Our text this morning is John 4, verses 16 to 26, but we will read verses 4 uh, through 26 to get you up on the background, okay? This is God's holy word. The Bible says, And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from this journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, uh, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Pray with me, friends. Lord, this, this word, this day, is gospel-rich, good news-rich. This is the kind of text I know you use to save souls and change lives. Would you, God, Use this text to change the lives of all who hear it. Would you, God, empower the preaching and the the thinking and the studying and the responding? 
Would you, God, do miracles that only you can do? That we plead with you, not because we're good, but because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I want to borrow an illustration uh, from another pastor, so this is not unique to me. But I want to give you a way to think about the gospel. Because sometimes when we think about the gospel and our standing with God, we use different types of analogies, right? When you present the gospel, some of you may use a courtroom analogy, right? Judges and, and guilt and innocence, and that's great, that's biblical. Sometimes we use language of family and relationships. But today I want you to think about three things with the gospel. I want you to think about God's design. I want you to think about our brokenness in sin. And I want you to think about Jesus as our hope. And I want you to imagine, and if you are a note taker, you can draw these. I want you to imagine three circles that you would draw. Okay, so you can put one in the upper left, one in the upper right, and then sort of a center one down below the two. Three circles, three locations, three thoughts. These are places where your life can be located. And the first one up in the upper left of your diagram, if you're drawing the diagram of the circle, call it God's design. God's design is up there. And the design of God is a place of total joy, total fulfillment, total peace, total satisfaction. It's where you are designed to live up there. And it's where you want to be. It's not just a good place, by the way, but because God is perfect and God is our creator, we owe it to God that our lives would be shaped to match God's perfect design. Let me just ask you, how many of you agree that if your life could fit perfectly within the design of God for your life, you'd be happy? Sound good to you? Well, the second location, put it over here, the top right side of the diagram. Call it brokenness. Brokenness. It's a place of sorrow. It's a place of suffering, disappointment, hurt, tears, frustration. And all human beings you've ever met, that includes you, have gone from God's design and have landed in brokenness. How many of you have frustration and hurt that you've experienced in your life? How many of you are not as perfect as you wish to be? There's brokenness. What causes one to go from God's design into brokenness? You can draw a little arrow from one circle to the next and put the word sin on that arrow. That's how we got from God's design into brokenness. Human rebellion against the perfection of God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned against God and they plunged the world into darkness and brokenness. And you and I, all of us have fallen short of God's perfection. Maybe it was a big thing. Maybe it was something small in your mind. Maybe it was something intentional. Maybe it was accidental. 
But if you're old enough to hear me and to understand what I'm saying, you have at some point turned against God, not done what God commands, and you have moved your life from the design of God and landed it in a mess, which we're calling brokenness. Now, can we agree that all of us live in a world that's broken? Y'all with me there? We're in brokenness. When our lives are in the state of fallenness and brokenness, sinful rebellion against God, we become desperate to be fulfilled. And we will try anything to get out of that second circle. You want to get out of that place. You want to get out of brokenness. And some people will try living for their own pleasures, thinking that will get them out of it. Some people will try academics. Some people try religion of all different shapes and sizes. Some people try substance abuse, escapist activities and thinking. Some people try suicide to get out of brokenness. But listen to me, none of us are able to get out of brokenness on our own. So everything I just said... Good behavior, bad behavior, substance abuse, suicide. They're like little squiggly lines that try to get out of that circle and can't ever break out of brokenness. And if you remain in a state of broken relationship with God, if you and I are not forgiven, we face a terrible judgment from God because God is totally holy, totally perfect, perfectly just. Brokenness leads to hell if the Lord doesn't rescue us. Now, I want you to put a third circle, if you, if you haven't already drawn it, that third, that bottom circle. If any of you guys haven't, if any of you remember like your, your grandfather's old electric razor that had the three heads, it's like that, those three circles. That bottom middle, use the line, the phrase, in Christ, in Jesus. In Jesus Christ, because of Jesus' identity, because of Jesus' finished work, God changes our lives. Jesus, he, he came to live the perfection that you and I have never lived. Jesus came to die to pay the price for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave and he showed us that he conquered sin and death and brokenness. And Jesus says, if you will turn from your sins, if you will entrust your soul to him, if you will surrender to him as your Lord, repent and believe he will forgive us our sins. And what he does is he moves us out of the state of brokenness and rebellion and into a new place in Christ. You want to draw a line from brokenness to Christ. You can put in that arrow, repent and believe with that arrow. That's how you get out. That's how we come out of brokenness and into Jesus. But when you have been moved by God out of brokenness into the in Christ state, you again have hope. You again have purpose. You again have a reason to live. You can find forgiveness for your sins. You find mercy from God. You find love in your God. Once you're in Christ, your life has changed. You begin to see your life moving back toward God's design. 
You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to failure. You find that you do not have to try empty, meaningless things to ease your pain. You move toward righteousness. You move toward doing, thinking, and living the way God wants. You you, you go toward living in a way that will actually satisfy your soul. Now, we're not all the way back to God's design yet. Have you noticed you guys haven't gotten perfect yet? Wives, have you noticed your husbands haven't gotten perfect yet? We're not there yet. We're going to struggle with failings and past brokenness for all of our lives. We need to heal. We need to grow. We need to recover from past wounds. But as we live in Christ, as we grow, what we do is we live toward the promise of going back into God's design. We live in Christ toward the design of God through repentance, through growth, through sanctification, through healing. And God promises us that when we die or when Jesus returns, all who are in Christ, God will finish the work he started in us and God himself will move us out of brokenness, out of, the in, out of just the in Christ circle here in this world. We'll stay in Christ, of course, but he will move us back into God's design. God will soothe all of our hurts. God will comfort us from every sorrow. God will dry every tear. God will take away the last bit of our imperfections. And when we live in the presence of Jesus forever, we will live perfectly in Christ, but totally in God's perfect design for our lives. We will live with joy. We will live with perfection. We will live with the certainty that we will never, ever fall into sin and brokenness again. Today you might be here and you might still be in the state of brokenness looking for a way to become the thing you're supposed to be. You might be looking for hope. You might be looking for life. I want to show you somebody in the Bible who starts to find it. The person who finds life in the passage for today is a woman who's deeply broken, deeply wounded, sinful. She's been hurt And she has chosen to turn away from the ways of God. And I can imagine that this woman wanted greatly to be loved, to be valued, to be accepted. But she had no idea how to truly find healing for her soul. She's going to find it. And I believe you can find it too. And maybe you're here today and you're not in the brokenness circle. Maybe you're actually in the in Christ circle today. You know what it feels like to have been rescued. Today would be a really good day for you to remember how great is your rescue. To remember who you were. To remember what Jesus has done. To remember his promise of life. And let it cause you to worship your God in spirit and truth. Today, we're going to find four points. you still got to take more notes. We're going to make our way into the middle of the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And we're going to watch her begin to find hope today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll see the impact of that woman's joy on an entire village. Now, before we get started, let's remember where we left the encounter between Jesus and this woman. Last week, Jesus was seated beside a well in Samaria. 
and it's noon, and a woman comes to the well for water. And that told us that there's something wrong here. This woman seems to be socially outcast in her community. And Jesus, showing tremendous kindness, talks to her and asks her for a drink. And when Jesus asks for a drink, he's going to start using the well and the water as a starter conversation for something more important. And as the two people talk, the woman begins to wonder just who in the world Jesus thinks he is. Are you greater than our father Jacob, she asks. And Jesus let her know he is significantly greater than Jacob, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. Jesus said to the woman, she could get water from the well, but she'll be thirsty again. But if she would ask Jesus, he would give her water, living water, spiritual water, and she'll never be thirsty again. And Jesus is speaking spiritually there about satisfying her very soul. Not satisfying a physical thirst, but the woman missed it. God had not yet opened her eyes to see. The woman wanted Jesus to magically provide her a way never to have to come and draw water from that well again. She didn't want to experience the daily hurt of going to the well alone. She, didn't, she wanted to avoid the, the ugly looks and the whispering behind her back of her neighbors. But Jesus wasn't interested in just solving a temporal need that would not fix her soul. Jesus had this woman's eternity in view. Jesus wanted to give this woman forgiveness, spiritual life. Now let's watch and let's see Jesus interact with this woman and let's see what you and I need to know so we too can worship the Lord Jesus and find life, the water of life. Point number one, be honest about your need. Point number one, be honest about your need. John 4, 16 to 19. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So just after the woman asked Jesus to give her water so she wouldn't need to come and draw water at the well anymore, Jesus asks a question that feels like a total non sequitur. It does not seem to follow in the discussion. Jesus tells her, go and get her husband and bring him there. By the way, y'all familiar with questions like that that come out of left field? Maybe you've been talking to your spouse and you're like, hey, I talked to this person and they said, I can make water that you never only drink once and you never have to have to have to drink anymore. And the question is, were they married? Well, that doesn't have anything to do with this. Maybe you've, maybe you've done this with your spouse. Hey, I saw a traffic accident out on the 15. Really? What was the weather in Denver? Huh? No. But the woman, when he, she gets this question, this weird feeling question, she responds with a little bit of evasion. You ever evade a question? 
I have no husband, she says. And what she said was true, but it was deceptive. No, she's not married. That's true. But she's hiding something. In fact, this woman is trying to hide from Jesus the very reason that she feels hated by her town. She's trying to hide the source of her greatest sin and deepest shame. Jesus knows. And Jesus lets her know he knows. The Savior says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus lays bare this woman's sin and brokenness. He points out the fact that she appears to be an adulteress. And once the woman hears Jesus' words, she has no evasion left. In fact, her words show us that she knows Jesus knows exactly who she is and what she is. And she looks at Jesus and she declares, I see that you're a prophet. She knows that the man in front of her has a genuine connection to God. She knows he sees right through her and he exposes her to the light of day. Her pain, her shame, her brokenness is clear. Now before you let yourself see this and read it through 21st century lenses, let me remind you that we're, this happened in the first century. And this woman knew that the word of God forbids adultery. This woman, unlike many people in our culture today, actually understood that sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage is hurtful to the person and dishonoring to the Lord. She knew her life, her behavior was wrong. The woman was broken. I don't know, guys, what started her down that path. It may not have been her fault what got her started. But by now she's broken. She's participated in sinful relationships. She has married and married and married and married and married again. And the flow of this conversation indicates that she bore responsibility for what she'd done. And now as she stands before Jesus, she's living with a man with whom, to whom she's not married. And that, of course, is a violation of the Word of God. Now, again, I want to make sure that we understand this because here we are in the 21st century and many people in the 21st century do not, even, even Christians in the 21st century, do not know what God's word clearly says about this topic. So listen to me just to be sure you get it. God's word is clear that sexual activity is for biblical marriage and marriage alone. Marriage is a public covenant relationship intended to unite one man and one woman for life. When a married person participates in sexual activity with anybody who is not his or her spouse, the Bible calls that adultery. When a single person participates in sexual activity with a married person, that person is also guilty of the sin of adultery. When a single person participates in sexual activity without being married to the person with whom they are, even if it's another single person, it is called fornication. All of these are sexual immorality according to the Bible. 
the only place that is safe, God-honoring, and right for sexual expression is true biblical marriage. With me? And God has every right to tell us how to behave, folks. God forbids all forms of sexual immorality. Now, I want you to hear me with sympathy as well, okay? One of the ways that the broken in our world try to find fulfillment, to get out of their brokenness, one of the ways they try is through relationships. Many people believe that if they could just find that one right person, if they could have that one mind-blowing, spectacular encounter, if they can be thought of as something different than what they are, if they could just be loved by somebody, they will escape their feelings of brokenness. But friends, that never, ever works. And it is not cruel for God to put boundaries on your sexual expression. God knows what is futile. God knows what will not free you from your pain. And God will never approve us trying a thing to fill our souls that will never and can never rescue us from our brokenness. But let me give you hope. Jesus is walking this woman towards salvation. He's moving her from being broken to a state of being made whole. Jesus is moving her from a state of being guilty and condemned before God to a place where she can be forgiven and welcomed by God. So this is good. And here's our lesson in this section. Here's what you've got to learn. Be honest about your need. Jesus exposes this woman's sin and her brokenness. He doesn't do it to be mean to her. He does it so that she will admit confess her sin. After all, no person can ever be right with God without first seeing their need for the forgiveness of God. How many of you would let a doctor perform surgery on you if you were not convinced that you were sick? I hope none of you. And you will never be ready to surrender to Jesus and find life and forgiveness in his name until you're convicted in your heart of the fact that you need the grace of God. Are you broken? Stop trying to find ways out of that feeling. Stop trying to find ways out of that place on your own. Your best efforts will never work. Just start by telling God you know you're guilty. Tell God you know you're helpless. Tell God that you know you need first and foremost God's forgiveness. And that will only come, friends, when you are willing to admit your need. Now, point number two. Seek God according to God's word. Seek God according to God's word. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, the woman says. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
So the woman acknowledges Jesus can see who she really is. She asks now a question about worship. And some people argue that the woman here is trying to avoid the intensity of the previous discussion. Having established that she's guilty of sin, the woman, maybe she is wanting to not have any more talk along those lines. So she throws up a a theological question like something about denominations or baptism or something. Now, it's possible that this woman is trying to avoid discussing herself and her sin, but I genuinely don't think that is even close to what she's doing. I do not think she's trying to change the subject at all. Because the Samaritan woman asks a question about worship. Let's remember, in her time, a question about worship involves a question of proper sacrifice. Proper sacrifice was needed to gain the forgiveness of sin. And it well could be that this woman is asking a question about where to worship because she wants to know where can I go to find forgiveness for my past sin? You see me. You know I'm a sinner. Where do I go to find life? Now, why does she need to ask that question? Somewhere around 400 BC, the people of Samaria built a temple on Mount Gerizim to rival the temple in Jerusalem. They chose that, hey, you can worship in our temple. You shouldn't have to go over to the other temple. Now, the Samaritan temple was destroyed a couple hundred years later But the debate over where to worship continued. And get this, where Jesus and the woman are standing, it is very likely that they could have turned and looked and seen the ruins of that temple on Mount Gerizim. So it makes perfect sense that this woman is going to say to Jesus, where do I go? Now, I believe if this woman had been wanting to change the subject, I think Jesus would have rebuked her for it. But Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He takes a second to answer what I believe is a very sincere, very important question. She wants to know how to be forgiven. She wants to know where forgiveness, where healing, where life is found. And the Savior is most definitely going to fill her in. But first, Jesus tells her, hey, that Jerusalem versus Jerusalem question... It's really obsolete. It's really beside the point. Jesus says an hour, a time is coming very soon when worship and forgiveness will have nothing to do with your physical location. We'll talk about that more next point. But since the woman did ask about the religion of the Samaritans as compared to the religion of the Jews, Jesus will take a second. He will answer it and simply put, Jesus says to this woman, the Jews have had it right. Jerusalem is the place God chose where people must go to worship because the Jews had the true knowledge of God in the scriptures, the word of God. 
What Jesus is saying when he says the Jews worship what they know, the Samaritans worship what they don't know, is he's telling her the Jews had the genuine knowledge of God. And why did the Jews have the genuine knowledge of God? Because they had the uncorrupted, holy word of God. The Samaritans had, had ignored the prophets, and the Samaritans had corrupted the Pentateuch. Jesus says, no, the Jews have the word, the Jews know the Lord. And then Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. What's he mean? You study the Old Testament, you're going to find out that God promised from the very beginning he's going to send somebody into the world to bring us forgiveness and salvation. And God's plan included putting together a single nation, the nation of Israel. And God was going to bring the Savior into the world through that nation. This, of course, is exactly what God did. So yes, salvation is from the Jews because the Jews are the people through whom God brought the promised Savior into the world. And salvation is from the Jews because the Jews are the people God first gave his scriptures to. And the fact that Jesus chose to answer this woman and didn't ignore that aspect of her question, that's actually what takes me to our second point. Seek God according to God's word. The woman says, who's right? Jews or Samaritans? You know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, it doesn't matter. Jesus didn't say, hey, look, as long as you are sincere in your faith, do whatever you want. No, no, no. Jesus makes sure that this woman understands that the written word of God, what you and I call the Bible, contains the way to find the grace and forgiveness of God. One significant truth that you and I need to keep in mind is that though people try all sorts of things to get out of brokenness, they want to find healing and forgiveness, there is one and only one way to life. You can't dream it up. You're not free to imagine it for yourself. You're not free to pick and choose from a smorgasbord of ideas. The only way to find life is to find it according to God's holy word. The woman, seeing her sin, feeling her shame, knowing her brokenness, believing that Jesus is a prophet, asks him, where do I find forgiveness? And Jesus says, it's not on this mountain over here, and it's not on that mountain over there. You must find forgiveness as God says in God's word. Now, third point. You still with me, by the way? Good. You guys are quiet. I can't ever tell. Third, worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Worship the Lord in spirit and truth truth 23 to 24 but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth verse 23 jesus tells the woman hour is coming It's not fully accomplished yet. He says the hour now is. So the answer he gives does already apply. The hour is when you will not worship God on either mountain, but you instead will worship God in spirit and truth. So you don't go to Jerusalem 
You don't go to Jerusalem to find God. You seek in spirit and in truth according to Scripture. Let me give you three things to think about as you think about what it means to worship God in spirit and truth. First, God is spirit, and that means God is not a statue. God is not a particular altar you go to to be forgiven. God is not bound to one mountain. God is not bound inside any nation's borders. God, the true God, is present everywhere at once. So those who worship God rightly do not look to find a special place. Worship in spirit means you detach worship from a location and know that worship is about the person of God. Now, understand, when I say worship is not about your location, I'm not saying it doesn't matter if you gather with the people of God for worship. The Bible commands the people of God to come together, to not give up meeting as a group for the sake of worship. What I'm saying is, it doesn't matter whether the building's pretty, whether it's a place you own, whether it's a rented room at the Y, whether we're borrowing some church's space, you can worship God in any of those places gathered with the people of God. And yes, you can, you can pray, you can honor the Lord in your day-to-day at your office, in your car. Another thing to think about, a second thing to think about as you consider the call to worship God in spirit is that your genuine heart, your genuine spirit must be engaged. There are religions out there that believe that what matters is just you following the ritual. You ever hear of religions that tell you, repeat this. Stand here, kneel there, dab on this oil, that water, eat this sacred thing, make this particular offering, burn this particular incense. And in those places, the worship has nothing to do with what you believe, but that's never been what the Bible calls for. God has never been interested in empty actions that have nothing to do with your heart. God wants sincere worship from a sincere heart and an engaged mind. And thirdly, truth matters too. This woman had been told false things about God and God's standards. That's why she thought she could worship on Mount Gerizim, according to the Samaritans. She thought God's restrictions don't matter. In fact, she may not have even known God's restrictions. But Jesus is quite clear here. Truth matters. Worship, whether it's us offering God praise or whether us seeking God's mercy, it must be done in accord with God's truth as proclaimed in God's word. If you want to please God, even if you have a big, giant heart and the deepest of sincerity, but you try to do so in opposition to God's word, you are not offering God acceptable worship. You must always keep learning the Bible so you can keep learning to worship the Lord in truth. That's why we come together and preach all the time, right? We want to get the truth. Now, tie this all together. Worship is not about your location. 
You don't worship God better in, a, in America or in Jerusalem. You're not more holy if you're standing in the River Jordan. It's just your job to come to God in spirit and truth. Come to God honestly. Don't just go through the religious motions. And come to God in accord to His commands. You've got to be sincere and directed by the Word of God. Again, we're broken. We need healing. We need forgiveness. You cannot get out of that state on your own. You cannot get out of that state with insincere religion. And you cannot get out of that state with sincere belief in the wrong thing. We need to come to the Lord in spirit and truth. And that brings us to point number four, the last one. Look to Jesus for salvation. Look to Jesus for salvation. Look at 25 and 26. We'll just brush them today. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Last thing we see the woman say today. She's looking for the Messiah, God's anointed one. She says he's going to make it all make sense. And Jesus, ever willing to enter into a relationship with anybody who wants him, lets her know he is the Messiah. Jesus is the one sent from God. Jesus is the one who will make plain what's confused this woman forever. He's the one to tell her about worship in spirit and truth. And friends, this is stunning. When Jesus was with the Jews in Jerusalem, he did not so clearly explain who he is. But right here, in the presence of a sinful woman in need, in the presence of a broken woman who has admitted her sin, who longs for forgiveness, Jesus is completely open. He's the Messiah. He's the only hope we have. And today, we worship Jesus, the Messiah, because he he came down from heaven. He was anointed by God to be the King of Kings. He is the sacrifice and the only sacrifice And is the only hope that we have that we could be forgiven by God of our sins. Jesus saves our souls. He forgives our sins. He brings us out of brokenness and moves us toward the design of God. The place of true joy and true life. The call of this last point is that you must recognize Jesus for who he is and come to him for salvation and give your life to worship him. Jesus is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your life devotion. And we'll leave this conversation before we see the woman's reaction to this amazing revelation. But next week, Lord willing, we're going to find out. But until then, listen. If you're someone needing forgiveness from God, I urge you, come to Jesus for life. There is no other way to escape the brokenness and hardship of our sin and to avoid the judgment to come. Believe in Jesus. Let go of your sin. Ask Jesus, Jesus, be my Lord. Forgive me my sin. And Jesus says He will. And He will move you from broken to in Christ. And that's the way back to the design of God. And if you know Jesus, 
I pray this look at His saving grace will lead you to a place of worship. Christ saves sinners. We who are saved should continue to worship Him in spirit and truth. And we should continue to seek to follow Him faithfully for God's glory, for our joy. Because that's what helps us continue in Christ to God's perfect design. Let's pray together. Father, even now, even now, we would love for you to change our lives in whatever way most pleases you. Where we need to repent of sin, let us repent. Where some need to have faith for the first time, grant them open eyes and genuine faith. God, our heart's desire is that you be glorified. I pray that you will save souls and give joy to Christians. Grow us and strengthen us for your honor. We pray it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.